Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You are listening to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined this week by Sayward Darby, the author of Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Frontline of White Nationalism. Thanks for joining us, Sayward. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what was the impetus for writing this book? So I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for, I mean, my whole adult life <laughs> and even a little before that, working in school at a paper. And I've always been really interested in in politics and culture. And I primarily my job is actually as a magazine editor, but I, I freelance from time to time on on media projects that I am really interested in. And after Trump's election in 2016, I like a great many people, you know, after I picked myself up off the floor in in despair, I was really interested in the chatter that had surrounded the so-called alt-right before and, and during election season. And I was struck by the fact that a lot of the coverage, most of the coverage, you know, described the, the alt-right as a bunch of angry white men. And that didn't really square with the fact that it appeared as though so a majority of white women, ultimately, the, the poll showed it was a plurality of white women had voted for Trump. And I thought, it just doesn't make sense to me that this newest iteration of white nationalism would be entirely made up of men. Why? Are, you know, who are the women? Why are the women not being quoted? And so the impetus really was just that curiosity. And so in November, December 2016, I, I went looking for the women of white nationalism. And I guess I've been kind of been on the hunt ever since. Yeah, you certainly found some. Uh, the, the book is sort of a history of white nationalism and women's involvement in it, but it's framed around these three specific women. How did you go about finding them and how did you get them to talk to you? Yeah, so I spoke to a number of women, you know, in that late 2016 into early 2017 period, and I found them on the, on the internet and they were all women who had profiles in some way. So, you know, they had YouTube channels or they had very active Twitter feeds or blogs. And I had a conversation. I was working on a magazine article that ultimately, you know, turned into turned into the book. But I spoke with my magazine editor at the time about the best way to approach these women. And, you know, I could have gone undercover, which is certainly one way of doing this kind of journalism. But I ultimately decided that if I was honest with them about who I was and what I believed and how, you know, I was never going to come around to their worldview... I was just going to feel better about the way that I was approaching the project. And so there there was a risk there insofar as, you know, when I said I'm a progressive and and 
a feminist and, you know, <laughs> I don't believe the things that you believe. There were certainly some women who were not interested in talking to me at all, but then there were some that were. And in one case, one of the women who went on to be one of the main subjects of the book, Lana Lochtef, who runs uh, Red Ice, a white nationalist platform, she was helpful in connecting me with a couple of other women. And and then ultimately, you know, as I expanded the magazine article into a book, because as you as you said, you know, it's a it's a bit more of a history than the magazine article was because it focused very, very specifically on the alt-right. I was able to, uh, you know, reach out to women who had been involved in this space for a longer period of time or at different periods in time. And again, that was just a lot of online research, um, you know, digging through old articles by the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League, but then also, you know, more local newspapers in, in cities where there are known to be, you know, pretty active white nationalist cells and identifying women who, you know, whose names were available. And also uh, the organization Life After Hate, which helps people leave white nationalism and, and, you know, ultimately not just leave groups, but then, you know, leave the ideology behind. That was also a source of subjects because they had a couple of women who were who were willing to tell me their stories. So you're, you're quite upfront about the prospect of converting you. Did any of them still try? Um, no. Uh, I mean, not in not in a, a evangelical way, for lack of a better word. You know, I think that what's what's sneaky about the way that women, in particular, in this space, work is that they won't necessarily come right out and say, "I'm going to convince you that you know my way of thinking is the right way." They more so want to you know seem very friendly, seem very uh, relatable, and I think the idea is like, well, if you know if if they see that I'm not such a bad person, even if I don't agree with their worldview, maybe I'll start to treat it as on on equal footing with my worldview, you know, just a different way of seeing the world, which I was of course not going to do. But no, at no point did anybody attempt to say, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, and, and like let me let me tell you why, and here's why you should come around. I also was not interested in arguing with them. That was a the one rule I gave myself when I started doing these interviews because I recognized that arguing with them was not going to get anywhere because they come to the table with different terms, right? You know, the things, the way that they, they define certain words or the way that they see history is just so radically different than the way I define terms or see history that if you start to argue with them, you're, you're basically, you know, screaming at a wall. And so I worked really hard in my interviews to kind of keep a straight face and just ask as many questions as I could, recognizing that, you know, I could bring my criticism to bear in the writing. And I think that that also, they, they seek to convert by arguing and, and making points. And, and I kind of shied away from, from doing that. So you've uh, you've noted the fact that uh, it, there's something seemingly incongruous with uh, women's participation in white nationalist politics. Also that in their public performances, many try to present a more innocuous or less threatening image of this movement. And yet the book's titled Sisters in Hate. So was, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by hate in this context, why you regard it as being a somewhat complex phenomenon and how it relates to white nationalist politics. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, the, the most illuminating part of this entire process for me, just as a, as a human being, was reconsidering what I think of when I think of hate. And this is based a lot on on the work of one sociologist in particular. Her name's Kathleen Blee. She's at the University of Pittsburgh, and she's been studying organized racism and hate in America for, for decades. Um, and there are not a lot of people who've been doing that. Um, she's, she's a really impressive scholar. And she and I mean, there are others who who certainly, you know, agree with her, but she basically says hate is 
if, if you think of hate strictly as disdain for someone or something, you're missing the dimensions in which hate functions as a social bond, a way of creating a network, a way of feeling like someone has defined their place in the world and, you know, has knowledge and, you know, I don't know, a way of a, a narrative that they are able to tell themselves about why the world is the way that they perceive it to be. And that to me was so incredibly helpful to understanding the nature of white nationalism, because if you just assume that the people who get involved in that space are, you know, more racist than the average person, or, you know, are particularly unwell mentally, or something along those lines, you're missing the fact that there are people who get into the space without having uh, racist views that are so much worse, so much more intense than the average American, white American, I should say, that they often are looking for something else, whether it's power or community or a sense of value or, or whatever it may be. And they get into this space on that basis. That's what they're looking for. And then they ultimately start to profess the beliefs, you know, use the rhetoric, you know, engage in violent behavior in some cases, or certainly engage in racist behavior. And that can be learned and performed over time. And that's not to minimize the things that they say and the things that they do. But rather, it's to recognize that it's a it's a more complex process than I think we tend to assume that makes someone into an extremist. And I think a really, you know, I'm, I'm not from Australia, have not spent any time there. And I don't, you know, know the politics there uh, terribly well. But you know, in the United States, I think one thing that's key to remember, and I make this point in the book, is that the things that white nationalists believe are not so radically different, really, than mainstream racism and white supremacy. They are just, you know, saying things out loud that other people feel uncomfortable saying. They are, you know, maybe amplifying or augmenting, exaggerating. But what they're saying is not so, it, it's not as though it's something people haven't heard before. And I think that's another important thing to remember when people are getting involved in white nationalism. Maybe they're there because of the network it provides. But then the, the things that people are telling them are legitimate ways of seeing the world and moving through the world are things that Maybe they feel deep down, yeah, I, I've always felt that way. And now I'm just allowed to express it. Now I'm just allowed to do it. So um, so that's a very roundabout way of saying that, you know, hate, certainly the, you know, hate as a, as a way of thinking is a way of feeling superior. It's a way of, you know, assuming that people who do not look like you are lesser than you. But then beyond that, hate is also a social phenomenon. It's something that happens between people. And that's just to me, the most like important kernel <laughs> of of knowledge that I, you know, acquired in, in working on this book. Something I found really interesting throughout the book was the ways that uh, women were sort of fundamental to a lot of racist and fascist movements. Uh, could you speak a little about the some of the surprising things you found out about how women were involved in these movements? Definitely. I mean, you know, the thing that I found so surprising was just periods of history that I thought I knew, whether, you know, I'm from the South in the United States and have a pretty good understanding of the history there. And, you know, I've studied the history of genocide and have read a lot about World War II and, you know, feeling like I had a pretty good sense of, of certain periods of history. And then in the course of working on this book, realizing the ways that women have been written out of those periods of history, by which I mean, certainly women are constantly written out of history in a positive sense, you know, uh, with regard to contributions to science, to politics, to any number of things. But in this case, like they've been written out of the history of how they've contributed to to fascism and, and hate. 
And I think there's a sexism in play there because people, there was a quote that I've, I I heard someone say, and I've never been able to find who said it, but essentially this idea that, you know, women are, are so often seen as like society's better angels. And that's a form of sexism, right? Like assuming that women are on a pedestal, that they are more innocent, they're pure, they're, you know, any number of things. And so when you look back at periods in history, where fascism has come to bear, or white nationalism has been particularly powerful, there's this idea that well, women wouldn't do that, they wouldn't engage in that, they're, they're better than that, totally false. And there are some really wonderful books from the last, mostly from feminist hi- historians, you know, showing the ways that women were more deeply integral and active, not just passive, not just present, not just uh, not not lifting a finger to help but actually actively involved in in regimes ranging from uh, slaveholding in the United States to the Klan in you know the early 1900s to Nazi Germany and i think that they women today who are involved in the space know the fact that you know, women in the past have been written out. And so they're able to present a front of, well, I'm not, of course, I'm not a Nazi, you know, I'm just a nice mom, I'm just a nice wife, I just want to want to have a nice, comfortable life. And you know, I'm nothing like those people from the past. And, and then people look to the past, and they mostly see men. And so they're like, well, okay, I guess maybe you're not like that. And so, you know, there's there's a part of all of this that I, I hope was bringing together kind of underappreciated and uh, misunderstood thread of history, which is, you know, women's contributions to to fascism and to, to hate and trying to put the lie to the fact that women today who are involved in white nationalism are really any different than those women. And, and also really interrogating the idea that women should be able to inhabit this space of, you know, being society's better angels, because that is benevolent sexism. It's, it's almost like, I don't know, a form of it that I'd never really thought about before working on this book, but, but suddenly kind of floodgates are open. <laughs> and now, you know, I can look back at history and wonder, well, how did women play a role in any number of oppressive regimes worldwide and have just been sort of, you know, forgotten or written out over time? Apart from, I guess, a commitment to thorough analysis and historical accuracy. Why do you think it's dangerous to overlook the role of women in white nationalist and far-right politics? And what problems or challenges do you think this presents to uh, a feminist understanding of society and of these movements? Yeah, I think that if we ignore the roles that women play or assume, and this is something I should have said in answer to the last question as well, the far right is a hyper misogynistic space and deeply anti-feminist. And so I think that there's also a sense among a certain set of men and women who, you know, say, well, why would a woman ever be involved in that when it's so obviously against her interests? But these women have ultimately defined their interests in a different way than, you know, I would ever define my interests as a woman or frankly, their interests as a woman. And and so I think, you know, it's it's important to, to recognize that, yes, this is a hyper misogynistic space, but also there are women who are happy with that. And, you know, what we say is sexism, what is sexism, you know, they define as just normal, natural, you know, the way things are supposed to be. But I think that we we risk in ignoring the roles that women have played or diminishing them. I think we risk recognizing, I guess the best way to, to, to think about it is sort of in like a hard power, soft power dichotomy. So I studied international relations in grad school. So men are often the leaders of organizations. They're the ones with, you know, traditional political cachet. They are more often than women, the violent actors on the far right. But women play this very important role as, you know, the glue that holds 
holds communities together, but they also are bridges to the more mainstream. People who can say at a parent-teacher association meeting, at a neighborhood association meeting, at a you know, gathering of people interested in a particular issue, like, you know, protecting the environment or, you know, questioning the efficacy of a coronavirus vaccine or something along those lines. Women, that's that's where they assert their power as recruiters, as strategists. And I think that if we don't pay attention to that, if, if we think of that as like somehow less important activism wise than people who perpetrate violence on, you know, uh, in, in the name of white nationalism or people who happen to be the president of some group. We're, we're missing the more day to day and, and frankly, pernicious ways that white nationalism can can take hold in someone's in someone's mind or in a community. And so appreciating the role or understanding the role that women play in this space is also to really dig into the space and to realize the the layers upon layers that exist and that it's not just who holds a title or who's been convicted of a criminal act, which is not to say that criminal acts are not really important and things that we should be going after as a society. But there are more mundane, frankly, ways that white nationalism can can spread and women are and have been for a long time very important activists in in that way. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Sayward Darby, the author of Sisters in Hate. The three women you speak to uh, all come to white nationalism through very unique sort of uh, pathways. But did you find commonalities in their journeys? Yeah, I think to a certain extent. I mean, you know, uh, there was Kathleen Blee, the sociologist I mentioned earlier. She had a wonderful quote, not wonderful, but just uh, succinct, I should say, to the point and saying so much in the New York Times back in the 90s where someone asked her, is is there a profile of the type of person who gets into white nationalism? And she said that would be comforting, <laughs> which I think <laughs> it, it would be because then you could map it and you 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 could predict things better. I think the, the, the commonality really in a general sense is that they're all seekers in some way. They're people who are looking for something whose need for something has become outsized in comparison to other needs. So again, whether we're talking about community, we're talking about power, we're talking about just a you know a, a sense of faith in something, a sense of allegiance to something. They are people who really, really want something. And this is the place in which they find it. I also think that they tend to be people for whom changing their minds is a pretty normal thing. And it, it's interesting because there, there's a paradox there because on the one hand, you know, they'll say, oh, I, you know, I radically changed the way that I saw the world. I, you know, went from being more of a centrist or a liberal or whatever to being a, a true, you know, a strong believer in white nationalism and needing to, to protect the white race. But again, I, I think that underneath that is the fact that the baseline of what mainstream politics, particularly in the United States, is it's a, you know it's a white supremacist system, it's a racist system, and they are it, it, it's not such a one eighty you know it's not like they're turning from one side to the other. It's more that that one side, the way that they were looking before, possessed certain degrees of white supremacist beliefs of a racist way of seeing the world, and then this 
again, augments it, exaggerates it. And so I think that's the other thing is there are people who are prone to changing their mind, but also like want to have their mind changed. And so in this case, they are very susceptible to being told, you know, this is a radical way of seeing the world. This is an avant-garde, not not avant-garde, but like, a you know, you're on the vanguard of like, you know, the political future or whatever it may be. When in fact, you know, everything that they are saying and doing, maybe the rhetoric's a little bit different, but it's the same old America is a white country, but it was just things that the whole country was founded upon. So, so yeah, you know, they're, they're seekers, they're people who, who like the idea of finding truth. And beyond that, it's really hard to find commonalities. You know, all three of the women uh, that I profile did not get into the movement because of a man. They didn't get into it because they had a husband or a boyfriend or a love interest, which I think is another sort of sexist assumption about the, about the space that, you know, if a woman is in it, it's because of a man. They came to it independently and, you know, they had different educational backgrounds. They had different family backgrounds. And none of them were from the South. Well, one of them kind of was. She was born there, but she wasn't raised there. And so immediately everything gets a bit messy because the commonalities fall away or, you know, they, they sort of only exist in the realm of the general in, in terms of, you know, that they're seekers. So it's, uh, I don't mean to be a pessimist, but I sort of am a pessimist <laughs> in that, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who are susceptible to to this way of seeing the world and this way of thinking. Well, it's good that they passed the Bechdel test. <laughs> I guess, I guess. Looking for silver linings constantly in this space and rarely finding any. <laughs> exactly. I, I, can't help but think of, and I, I saw you mention this on Twitter the other day when you talk about those people who are susceptible, the wellness industry mm-hmm. and uh, that sort of space on social media, those people seem very susceptible to these arguments. Absolutely. And if you think about, you know, what is wellness all about? You know, it's about taking care of oneself, taking care of one's immediate circumstance. There's also a degree of interest in purity of things that are not tainted, things that are not toxic, um, you know, sort of cleansing your environment. And frankly, that's, that's, you know, white nationalism is an argument for that. It's eugenics in its worst <laughs> form. But even when it's not that, even when it's, I don't want certain people living in my neighborhood, or uh, by which I mean, you know, people who are not white, or any, any number of other ways of thinking about what a society should look like, it's just a racial and political manifestation of this obsession with with purity and health. And so it's frankly not surprising that I think it's also a self-interested thing. And this is I certainly want to have take care of myself and I encourage people to take care of themselves. And I don't mean to suggest that that turning inward and, and thinking about how to be a happier person or a healthier person is, is a bad thing. But I think that this space also appeals to a particular narcissism, um, white nationalism does, this idea that the most important thing is you and yours. The most important thing is taking care of your own. And this you know, real rejection of a wider sense of community and also the willingness to be uncomfortable. Because I, I think so often, you know, the wellness and self-care industry is all about, well, how can you feel more centered? How can you feel less threatened? How can you feel less anxious? And again, white nationalism is, is also all about how can you be all of those things 
it's just in the sense of like, how can you feel safer in your neighborhood? How can you feel safer in your country? And and there's just a particular narrowing of the idea of what it means to be a human being, frankly, but also, you know, just a, a citizen of, of your community, of your country, and being willing to, to find yourself uncomfortable sometimes and working through that and being a better person, being a bigger person. We all have prejudices. And those are just something you have to work through. And white nationalism says, no, don't work through it. Don't work through it. And I think that self-care in like an extreme sense, the wellness industry in extreme sense can promote something similar. This idea that like, well, if it, it makes you uncomfortable, don't do it. If it makes you uncomfortable, don't, don't go there. Like that's not healthy for you. And I think that, you know, that's completely at odds with anti-racist work and a lot of social justice work. I guess just to finish, in the book, you note that some of the women were not especially happy that you were writing a book about them. <laughs> uh, now that the book is out, have they read it? And have what has their response been? You know, if they have read it, which frankly, I would be a bit surprised if they had, they have not said so. Lana Lochtef very shortly after the book came out, she and her husband on Red Ice, which is, you know, still a very widely watched platform on the far right, they recorded a video where, you know, they said I was a stalker and was a slanderer and all these different things, which, I mean, if asking questions and <laughs> telling the truth is stalking, I, I don't know what to say. That's, you know, journalism at, at its best. So they've certainly, I, I think that so far, they've been sort of dismissive, like this is just garbage, you know, this is anti white dribble. And if they've read it and have more specific <laughs> uh, things that they disagree with, or things they want to say, they, they have not said them yet, there's still time obviously. But then I read some chatter uh, on like the wider far right internet that people who even maybe have read the book, their their take is the same. Like they go into it with a preconceived idea of what they're going to think about it. And I'm just a liberal feminist idiot, you know, and any number of things um, in, in their in their vocabulary uh, that, you know, they they like to think of me as. So um, cat lady is a frequent you know, I'm just a, a cat lady, which I do. I have a cat. I love my cat, but uh, I also have a dog. I love my dog. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I don't want to jinx it, but but thus far, you know, the reception has been mostly positive and then predictable, I guess I would say, on the far right. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Sayward. The book is called Sisters in Hate. You can get it uh, wherever you get your books in uh, this pandemic age. <laughs> Maybe a little bonus question for the podcast. Did you want to ask about the anarcho syndicalism? Uh, I, I could. Uh, <laughs> I did have a couple more questions, but uh, just in relation to that, uh, say, would I think it was, uh, is it Ayla? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, at, at some point uh, on her journey in her first few steps, uh, she described herself as a, an anarcho-syndicalist. And I guess with maybe some of the others as well, Lana, there's been various ideological identifications that these women have uh, adopted at various points before arriving at white nationalism. Mm -hmm. and, and there also seems to be quite, a, a, as you've, I think, written in the book, that this uh, desire to obtain meaning and significance, mm -hmm. which isn't available to them through normal channels. So... To what extent do you think these women, in terms of their journey, uh, could easily have ended up, you know, somewhere else, I suppose? And what are the factors, are there, are there particular factors that mean that these white women in 21st century America or Australia, you know, do find themselves involved in white nationalist and far-right politics? 
Yeah, I think that's, you know, such an important question, because if you're a seeker, right, and you're just a person who purely is interested in finding, you know, the next thing that, you know, identifies you or you feel that you identify with or whatever, you know, that could cross the the gamut, right? And I think that what's interesting about these women is that at the end of the day, they were ultimately concerned about maintaining their status, as white women in a society where white people are at the top of the hierarchy. So, you know, might they have wound up, I don't know, um, you know, more so on the far left? Might they have identified as socialist or something along those lines? I mean, Ayla did to a certain extent in in her younger life um, back in the, you know, 2000 to 2007, 8 period, I guess. But ultimately, she, if you, if you read, you know, she was a very prolific blogger at the time. And Again, there's this desire to to be seen and heard and, you know, a status to preserve as a white woman, as a white mother. And and I think that that's where you know, women who who want to have meaning, who want to feel like they're on the front lines of something, who want to feel you know, like they're really making an impact and, you know, I, I don't know, um, on the cutting edge of something, whatever that, you know, whatever the whatever the way it is that they're they're thinking about it. They also, beneath that, want to maintain their status. And so, you know, they have no desire, again, to be uncomfortable, to feel like someone else gaining rights, someone else, you know, finally being treated <laughs> equally under the law means means that, you know, they uh, lose something, which of course it doesn't, but that's ultimately the thing that undergirds it. So I don't know. I mean, yes, I guess they all could have wound up in some kind of different place, but I think at the end of the day, beneath all of this, I'm looking to the future. I'm thinking of the next thing. I, you know, what is, what is my new identity? There was a very retrograde sort of pull toward an old way of existing in America, frankly, the, the oldest way of being at the top of the hierarchy. I just thought I'd ask about the anarcho syndicalists because our audience is probably half international relations students, so they got yeah. their <laughs> their one before, and the other half would be anarcho syndicalists. So, in terms of the the role that these uh, women play in this movement, and I'm not sure that we've uh, discussed it previously in the interview, but there's this uh, tremendous esteem given to the role of uh, being a mother, and in this context, the critical role that white women play in the reproduction of the the white race. So, I guess my question is. How is motherhood utilised in this context and why is it accorded such importance and how does that play out in uh, these case studies? Yeah, I mean, motherhood is, you know, essential, frankly. You know, if, if your entire project is about preserving your people, so to speak, you need to make more people. So so motherhood is is essential. And what we've seen over time from, again, you know, the clan and the early 20th century, especially the Nazis who gave out medals to women, uh, depending on how many children they'd had to today and the sort of valorization of having white children, raising white children, building a future that that protects their interests, which, you know, means remaining at the top of the of the social hierarchy. Motherhood is without it, there is no movement without it. There is there is nothing other than other than rhetoric, frankly. And and I think that there's there's something there about ease. There's something there about a white woman who's looking for meaning, who's looking for power, who's looking for value, a sense of, you know, having value, who's being told you have all of those things simply by virtue of who you are 
what your biology is, you know, what your aesthetics are, and being told that you're special and you matter because of that. And so I think that motherhood, just from a symbolic standpoint, is so important and it's a huge part of propaganda and the the visuals pertaining to the far right. But then I also think that from a from the standpoint of recruitment and from the standpoint of of sort of acclimating people to to the movement, women are are told that they don't really have to do very much, frankly. They don't have to think too hard. They don't have to even even actively do anything if they don't want to, politically speaking. But then as a wife, as a mother, you are a keeper, not just of your family, you are a keeper of the race. You are a keeper of the nation. Like you are a warrior, essentially, by doing all of those things. And so there's a there's a function where there's the symbolism of it. And this is the thing that we're fighting for. And so you know, you put the mother on the pedestal, and whoever is an actor in this space, you know, whether they're committing violence, or whether they're seeking political power, or whatever it may be, you know, that, that that's what they're fighting for. That's the symbol. But then women themselves become activists as mothers. And and I think too, motherhood is something that they again can can bond with other women in society over. And in the United States, again, I don't know a ton about Australia and forgive me for that. But in the United States, mothers are, we, we celebrate mothers. We love mothers, but then we actually treat mothers really terribly. <laughs> you know, we have no great maternal leave. We don't take care health-wise of, of mothers and children in the way that we should. And so here's a space where all of these things that you, as a as a woman who's interested in being a wife and being a mother, have felt very confused by or victimized by, you know, depending on who you are and what the policies you're you're facing are or the circumstances you're facing are. And here you're being told this is celebrated, and and I think that that's something that they can find very alluring, and then they can find common ground with other women who who feel similarly, but maybe haven't figured out what their worldview is yet or are trying to decide how they want to raise their children. And this is where sort of the soft power of white nationalism comes into play is, you know, women communicating with other women about being mothers, being wives, being women, frankly. And that's so, so important and so overlooked when we talk about when we talk about the far right. One of the things I, I thought was interesting in the case of these women in particular and but but other women involved in the movement is the, the kind of somewhat unresolved tension between being esteemed for playing the role of the uh, mother and housekeeper and having the ostensibly private domain be their they're the most important actor in that you know in the household at the same time having a very public presence as um, propagandists and mm-hmm. having to produce propaganda and, and become personalities I suppose. And I wondered what's been the role of um, the internet and technology in particular in facilitating this kind of expression where, on the one hand, they're, they're very committed to you know, maintaining the home and so on and so forth, and presumably that activity could go on without um, it being publicised, let's say, and yet these women being driven to undertake these more active uh, roles in, in propaganda. So I guess what I'm asking here is to comment on that tension and also to look at... Um, you know, how significant has the internet and social media been to the creation of these sorts of figures? Yeah, I mean, there's really no way, no way to overstate how important the internet has been to white nationalism. I think that 
America in particular, between the Civil War and the late 20th century, it became less politic, less diplomatic, less polite, less acceptable, less less ethical to be as overtly white supremacist and racist as the country had always been. And so people started using more coded language and started talking about a post-racial society, which was a myth. And the internet appears and people who want to speak frankly, want to speak more explicitly about matters of of race and, and whiteness in particular, have a place where they can do that away from the prying eyes of, I, I see that sounds pejorative, and I don't mean it that way, because I'm, I'm a prying eye, like I think prying eyes are really important, um, you know, of, of the media or the legal system or any number of things. The internet was a was a boon, frankly, to white supremacists. And they're in even in the like, early to mid 1980s, you know, we're talking like the proto internet, these dial up message boards, white nationalists were some of the very first groups to 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 get on that, frankly, because they saw that this was a way to communicate. And then as the internet exploded, and as social media, as we now know it exploded, it was another place where people who were feeling aggrieved, people who were feeling confused, people who were feeling left behind, whatever it may be, could go and they can frankly find any message they want to find, whether it's one of go commit violence, and you'll be a a warrior for the cause or something not quite so extreme, but still in the same ecosystem of, well, here's how you can feel better about yourself and better about your place in the world. So truly, truly, there is no way to overstate the importance of the internet. I think the thing that's important to remember, though, is that it's not that the internet gave rise to these beliefs. Again, I I firmly believe that thinking of America as a white nation, thinking of white people as superior culturally, biologically, you know, any any number of things that, that white nationalists today talk about on the internet, that was all there long before. The internet just created a forum in which discussions about these things could go wild, frankly, and then also people could experiment with different ways of talking about it so that it seemed less objectionable to, to the mainstream. So truly, truly cannot overstate <laughs> the internet. I, I was actually talking to, to someone the other day who works in terms of service for for a social media platform. So, you know, taking taking things down when it's either hate speech or child pornography or any number of things. And I said, I truly don't know how you do your job. I would just delete the internet. Like I would just be constantly, <laughs> you know, please, nope, nope, can't do that. Can't say that, you know, because I just, it really can feel like a cesspool. Obviously the internet does great things too. Um, I mean, I'm talking to you in Australia over the internet. Like that's amazing. But yeah, it's a, it's a, just a, a the wild west, frankly. And then in terms of the tension, you're talking about women as mother versus influencers versus, you know, people in power. I mean, I think that's something, it's a tension that women have navigated forever in white nationalism. And I think that they have to walk a tightrope where even when they are playing the role of propagandist or in the Instagram age as an influencer or whatever word you want to apply to it, they also have to make sure that they're inhabiting a certain acceptable idea of what it means to be a woman. So that is certainly being a wife and a mother, or at least aspiring to be a wife and a mother if you're, if you're younger. But then also just, I don't know, looking a certain way, having sort of traditional aesthetics. And so yes, they're propagandists. Yes, they are influencers, but they're also playing by a certain rule book, frankly. And I think that they are the, the best among them in terms of like the savviest among them have really figured out how to how to do that. Just on the, the internet point, it was sort of quaint 
to read in the book about, you know, someone going online and going to Stormfront and I know. getting into that <laughs> rather than just, uh, you know, going to YouTube and looking up, oh, how, how do I make pickles? And then uh, right. going down that recommendation algorithm loop rabbit hole. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And, you know, Stormfront's still there. I read a lot of Stormfront because of the research for the book. And I'm sure that the NSA and FBI are like, what is this woman in Brooklyn, New York doing reading a lot of Stormfront? <laughs> but, but it is. I mean, it does feel antiquated because Stormfront is janky for lack of a better word it's clunky it's it's just a 101 message board and then you look at something youtube i think truly is the the most toxic of these spaces where you know you get on and you i don't know like i'm a let's say i don't know i've I've been hearing in in the news about you know this q community what is this q community and you get on and you see what you know is you know a, a pretty decent explainer of just you know what the 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 Q conspiracy is all about, but then all of the recommendations, all of the algorithm, you know, where the algorithm takes you is to actual believers in that conspiracy. Or to your point, you know, you go online to look up how to make pickles or any number of things, and suddenly you're like, why am I listening to people talk about neo Nazis? And and so it is. It's it's quaint to imagine a time where if you logged onto the internet, you had to go specifically to the racist site you meant to go to. <laughs> um, and and that's again just another way in which you cannot overstate the importance of of the internet and it's just unbridled uh, way of letting this kind of hate speech and disinformation flow. Well, folks, we ran out of time for the radio show, but if you want to hear us ask a few more questions of Sayward, you can grab the podcast version of this show at 3cr.org.au slash yeah, nah, passeran. We are out of here. Global Intifada is up next. Here's Pussy Riot. Make America great again. See ya. you want it to be do you know that the world has two sides and nobody is free did your mama come from mexico papa come from palestine sneaking all through syria crossing all the borderlines let down the people in listen to your women stop killing black children
Center is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a fuss is a crowdsourced craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. <laughs> <laughs> 